you have your Bibles, take them back to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament for the last several weeks. I think this makes our sixth, sixth study in the book of Ruth. We've been going verse by verse through here and, and trying to encounter the Lord Jesus. The book of Ruth is a book about the grace of God. About God's grace as seen in the historical events that surround this Moabitess woman named Ruth and a kinsman redeemer in the name of Boaz. And I believe there's a lot we can see from this story. Again, the Apostle Paul said that the Old Testament, these, these historical accounts are, are used by the Holy Spirit for our admonition, for our instruction. And I believe this whole book, its history included, points us to Jesus about who He is and His character. And so as the Lord leads, we're trying to find the Lord Jesus in this story, trying to see His grace and mercy. And today, we're going to be looking at gleaning in the fields of grace. Last week, we were introduced to this new scene where uh, Ruth was going out into the field and Boaz had, had seen her and gave instruction and was gracious to her. And so we're going to continue, pick up reading in Ruth chapter number 2 and verse number 6. We'll read down through verse number 13. Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 6. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is a Moabitess damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she came and had continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, and neither go from hence, but abide here, fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go, th and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they uh, shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowed herself unto, uh, to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and mother in the land of thy nativity, art come unto the, a people which thou knowest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. And she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast, for thou hast comforted me, and for thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaiden, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. Gleaning in the field of grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you uh, for uh, the fact of your death, burial, and resurrection. As our, as our songs have sung this morning and put blatantly before us the, the gospel work of the Lord Jesus. What you have done for us on the cross 
deserves every bit of praise, Lord, glory, and honor. God, we thank you for what Jesus has done. And in what he has done, he has opened up to us beautiful fields of God's grace. Grace that we could never possibly exhaust. Grace to meet every need of our lives. God, let us examine these fields of grace today. Holy Spirit, come teach our hearts to love Him more. God, show us by this example how that Jesus is our all in all. That He is everything that we could possibly ever need. God, I pray for those that may be here without the Lord Jesus. They don't... They've never experienced the grace of God. May they, may they say unto this world goodbye, turn their back from, uh, from a living a life of sin and self and turn to trust Jesus alone. Put the, put the old world to their back and have them face headlong into the God of Jehovah. God, we pray that they would come and know Him in saving faith. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I think I believe I said something about this last week that the backdrop of the love story between Boaz and Ruth, and this indeed is a love story. Many books have been written about the book of Ruth under the guise of the romance of redemption. And that's really what it is. It's a picture of redemption. It's the, it's the beautiful depiction of what Jesus has done for us. And with every verse, we see glints and glimmers of that beautiful uh, relationship between Boaz and Ruth, which, which uh, types and shadows for us the relationship between the, the lost sinner that has found Christ and come into relationship with Him. But all through this book, and I think I said it last week, is that the backdrop of this story are these fields of wheat. These fields of harvest, remember at the beginning of chapter 2, how that Ruth went out into the field at the time of the barley harvest, or excuse me, uh, chapter 1 verse 22. It was the time of the barley harvest. It was the time when the fields had come to fruition. You know, there's nothing that speaks abundance than the image of a field of wheat. Uh, you know, I, I often love the montages around... Fourth uh, of July that people make and and uh, I remember one I seen years ago how that uh, it was talking about it had a video montage and it was had in the background that song America the Beautiful and when it when it talks about amber waves of grain and you've probably seen this how that they'll pan across a midwestern uh, a midwestern wheat field and just show all these these wheat uh, uh, wheat stalks heavy with ears of corn, of wheat, out in, those, out in those wheat fields. I mean, nothing speaks of the abundance of, the, of our nation as those wheat fields out there in the Midwest. When it comes to God, I think nothing speaks to us, uh, uh, nothing speaks to the, uh, God's abundance more than His abounding and amazing Grace. All through the New Testament, this theme of the grace of God comes up again and again and again. It's, it's the Apostle Paul's uh, theological uh, eyeglasses. He, he sees all of the things that God does 
through the grace of God. The grace of God is defined as the unmerited, undeserved favor of Almighty God towards sinful men. Some have given us this acrostic to try to quickly sum up what grace is. The grace of God is G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is a good summary of the grace of God. But here, here in, this, in this text of, of Ruth and Boaz and this scene out in the field, we're given a snapshot of grace in the Old Testament. All the glories that Ruth experienced were because of the grace that she experienced. And I'm not talking about just the law. Remember we talked about last week or some successive weeks before how that the gleaning in the field, and we'll go over this in a moment in more detail, the gleaning of the field was a provision. It's kind of a a welfare aspect of the Jewish law. How that they were able to go behind the gleaners and to pick up what they dropped. Pick up the little... The little pieces of corn and the little things that would fall off of the grain itself. I don't know if you understand. This is not full stalks that you just kind of throw out. Ruth would have been out in the field picking up little kernel by little kernel that she could find on the ground. That was what she was allowed under the law. But what she sees here, what she encounters here from Boaz far exceeds whatever the law may have merited. No, no, no. This is well beyond just the, uh, just the, the grovelings of, of welfare to the, to the widow. No, no, no. This is the abundant grace of God shown through Boaz unto Ruth. Now I want you to see this. I want you to see, first of all, note how we see the grace of God in Ruth's life. Just Ruth being in that field is the grace of God. She is readily identified as a Moabitess. We read about that in verse number 6. The servants are describing to Boaz. Remember, Boaz pulled up in his Z71. He had his, he had his farm bureau hat on and a stock of, a, a, a piece of straw in his mouth, his cup of coffee with him. And, and he's, he's surveying the field. You know, it's all in the Hebrew. You've got you to look... Z71, it's in there, you got to find it. And so he's looking over the field, and they, he sees her right off the bat. And so they begin to tell him all that's going on with this strange woman there of, of Ruth. And so she's readily identified as a Moabitess, a Moabitish woman. Now you might think, well, Brother Ronnie, some people are Canadian. Some people are from Mexico, uh, some people are from Germany. You know, what does it matter? What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal in that Jewish culture. Because the Jewish nation, the law under which they were, God had already clearly said in His Word that the Moabitish people, the Moabites were condemned unto God. They weren't even allowed to join the congregation of worship. They were cut off 
from the promises and the covenants. You know, all of the, a lot of the Old Testament law is, is covenants, it's promises. It, it, God says, if you'll do this, I'll do that. It, the law of God. But they're completely cut out of that. They have no stake in that at all. Deuteronomy 23.3 says, And Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Notice this. That word says that the Moabitish people, if a Moabite were to come from Moab, let's say they had a famine there, and he was to migrate to Israel and uh, find a place there in Israel and, and rent a house and begin to live there, his son, he could not be a part of the congregation of the Lord. His son couldn't be a part of the congregation of the Lord. His son's sons, his son's 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 sons is all the way out to ten generations. I don't know about our history of the United States, but I dare say we're not even in the history of our nation maybe down to the tenth generation. That's a long time. They're not, they're not, that's a, that's a, that's a, a condemnation, a curse that evidently God takes very seriously. And because of their defilement, their wickedness, they were cast off and cursed by God. And, and Ruth, she's lumped up with those people that are cursed and rejected by God. She is a picture of you and I in our natural sinful condition. She is who we are without Jesus Christ. We're in line to incur the full measure of God's wrath. Look at what the New Testament tells us in Ephesians 2, 2 through 3. Paul is explaining to the Ephesians of their condition was before they met Christ. You know, that's one of the things about, about being a Christian we can, we can come to faith in Jesus Christ knowing that the basic knowledge, we were a sinner. We needed saving. I needed change. I can't meet God the way I am. Like that, like that woman was explaining, uh, her fear is, we, there's that natural fear. I don't want to meet God in my condition as I am. We are without Christ. And we can come to Christ but we sometimes can't understand the magnitude of our condition outside of Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul, he's telling them in Ephesians what that condition was. He said, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's the devil. He said, you walked according to Satan. You walked according to the, the devil, the, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul said, you were children of the devil. You were children of wrath. God, had, God didn't know you anything but eternal torments in a lake of fire. He's explaining to them, their, their condition outside of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we may not know the magnitude of that until after we put our trust in Him. 
And see, and that, that, that's us. That's who we were. Outside the covenants of promise. Outside of Jesus Christ. Outside of any hope of eternal life. We too, passively and actively, were disobedient, depraved, and damned just like Ruth. But where is she now? She's not in Moab anymore. She's in the breadbasket of Israel. She's in Bethlehem. Uh, the place and the house of God's bread. Uh, the place uh, of God's blessing. She has not only a guilty state, but she has a gracious standing. What happened? Do you remember what happened? How, how that when Naomi was trying to tell Ruth to go on home. Orpah, go on home. And don't, don't follow me. Don't go with me. Orpha, she goes on home back to her people in Moab. But Ruth said, what, is she, what does Ruth say? He says, she said, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That is an about face. That is a turning from the curse of Moab towards the blessing of Israel. It's a gracious standing. It doesn't... Uh, listen, where she is now and how Boaz is speaking to her doesn't sound like she's rejected and despised anymore for being a Moabite. Oh, this is what the encounter of the grace of God does. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. I once was condemned. I once was rejected. But now I'm found. Twas blind. But now I see. I've been grafted in. I've been accepted in Christ Jesus. Ruth made an about face in Moab. And now she finds herself standing in the field of God's grace. Notice, notice how Boaz addressed her in verse number 8. Boaz said unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? My daughter? Listen to how tenderly, how tenderly Boaz speaks to Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. If anything, if anybody could have had legitimate dispersions and cut downs and nasty words said to the Jew could say that to a Moabite and listen how tenderly he approaches her we were sinners but now by the grace of God we have become saints once children of wrath and now we are the children of God. We had no hope and now we have a blessed hope. We were once rejected and now we've been received. It is a complete change. He addresses her in tender terms. Not with thunderings and rumblings of lightning. No, she is hearing the blessed, the blessed voice of kindness, love, and friendship. Michael Jordan can take, I don't know if he still can, but he could at one point, could take a basketball and dunk it on a 10-foot goal from 15 feet away. That's what you call talent. The United States Treasury can take a special piece of paper, put some ink on it, press it between some plates, and make a $100 bill. That's what you call money. The Wright brothers 
could take some used bicycle parts, wire, metal, and canvas covering and make an airplane. That's what you call genius. Michelangelo could take some brushes and some paints and paint a masterpiece on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That's what you call art. But God can take poor, worthless, devastated, hell-bound sinners condemned by God and wash them by the blood of Jesus Christ and make them sons and daughters. What do you call that? That's grace. That's God's grace that can do such a miraculous thing. To turn one that was rejected, to turn one that was despised, to turn one that rightfully deserved nothing but the wrath of God. Put them in a field of abundance, of mercy, of love, of acceptance. That's grace. That is God's grace. That is gleaning the, in the forbearance of grace. The forbearance of grace. Now, second of all, uh, second of all, gleaning the fruitfulness of grace. The fruitfulness of grace. Part of gleaning what Ruth had been doing was picking up off the ground the fruit of the harvest that was led, that was left behind. What she encountered in the following verses of our text is not droppings, it's not leftovers, it's not accidents. No, it is the full fruitfulness of grace. In that same passage where Paul is telling them in Ephesians to their condition children of wrath children of disobedience following the lust of flesh he comes along in verse number 7 and begins to talk about the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ we've gone from being cursed to being abundantly supernaturally over and above blessed of God 2 Corinthians 4.15 the apostle Paul writes for all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God God has given us all things in Christ Jesus the abundant fruitfulness of the grace of God, I believe, can be seen in this field of Boaz. So, the grace of God is the forbearance of God. She wasn't cut off. She wasn't, she wasn't cursed and left in that field, but now she's standing in a field of abundance. A field of, of, of blessing and acceptance by Boaz. What does that grace look like now? It's not only grace about where she is in that field, but there's other intervening grace that we see here. Notice in verse number 8, he, he said, Boaz said to her, Hearest thou not my daughter? Go not to glean in another field. Neither go from kits, but abide here, fast by my maiden. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. One of the things that we in the New Testament can, can take from this scene is 
the reality that Boaz, the master of the field, is speaking to her. She's hearing his voice. This is the way of it when we walk into the field of grace. His words begin to penetrate our hearts. We begin to hear him. To sense his voice. We couldn't hear the voice in the foreign land of Moab. We couldn't hear the voice being cursed of God. God didn't owe us anything. The only, the only speaking he did was repent and believe. Come to us. But now, now Ruth is hearing the voice of the master. I think about Song of Solomon 8.13. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearkened to thy voice. Cause me hear it hear the voice of God How, brother Ronnie do you mean you get special special words in the midnight hour no I get the word of God here which I was somewhat blinded to outside of Christ it, it had no meaning I tried to read the Bible before I was saved and it, it didn't make much sense but afterwards it, it began to penetrate my heart that the things that were said in this book begin to be a sense in which he was talking to me. And it makes sense. Jesus said as much in John 10, 3-5. Listen to what he said. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Jesus himself said, they will hear my voice. And what is this voice saying? What is Saint Boaz saying to her? He is giving her guidance. He's saying, listen now, don't let your eyes fall on another field. You just stay in this one. Stay right here. Follow my maidens wherever they go. They know where the field is. Follow my maidens. Stay with them and stay in my field. Don't go to another field. Every, basically what he's saying is everything that you need is right here. It's in my field. It's where I am. It's where you hear my voice. It's where my people are. It's where my, my servants are. When we are introduced to the grace of God, we can see how Christ begins to lead us, to guide us, to conform us. That's what Paul says in the New Testament, that we, by the Word of God, being conformed into Himself, molded and shaped into the likeness of Jesus. Before the grace of God, we were, the grace of God, we were lost. We were missed. Guided, but by the saving grace of God, we now have a new captain on board that is leading us to the by the divine compass of his word. Psalm 32 8 I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way that thou shouldest go, uh, thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not on thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him. And He shall direct thy paths. Boaz is saying, Ruth, listen. Don't go to any other field. Everything you need 
will be provided in this one. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Jesus is saying to us, don't go to any other field. Don't go to any other place. Listen for my voice. Follow me where I'm going. The sad reality is, how many times are we prone to go look for another field, another place, another thing to find nourishment, sustenance, to to build our lives on shifting sands of of the pleasures of this world, the acquisitions of this world, the, the compliments of this world, popularity, whatever the case may be, prosperity. We, we build our lives on those shaking sands and other fields looking for everything we need somewhere else when Jesus is saying, all you need is right here in my field. I'm not talking about this place specifically, but what I am talking about is in that right relationship with Jesus where my eyes are fixed on Him, where my hands are reaching for Him, where I'm in His Word, being led by His words. Don't go to another field. It's steering Steering grace. Notice also not only steering grace, but sheltering grace. Look at verse number 9, the latter part. He gives, a, he gives another reason to stay. He said, he said, I have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? He is saying that there's protection here. Protection. They've been protected. I, I don't know. If this is in a situation where she is an attractive woman, obviously Boaz uh, immediately drawn to her visage and what she looks like. And, and so maybe he's saying to her, listen, I've told these boys they're going to leave you alone. They're not going to touch you. They're not going to take advantage of you. They're, gonna, they're going to be kind. What a, what a reprehensible charge is being found in so many churches in the Southern Baptist Convention of the independent strife of how, of how sexual promiscuity and sexual abuse is taking place in God's house when Jesus has expressly told us that we should stay away from such a thing. This ought to be the safest place in the world, the church of the living God. And for so many in our, in our world today, this is the scariest place to come to. Podcasts are popping up all over the place having terrible stories of people's experiences. I've listened to some of them, and some of them, when they, when they approach the doors of a church, have a panic attack because of the abuse they've suffered at the hands of God's people when He has clearly told us, Oh, Ruth, you can trust my, you can trust my young men. How, how awful. How awful. But here, He said, you, you can trust them. You could trust these men. Or whether it be because she's a Moabitess. Maybe it's not that way. Maybe they're not, they're not going to throw rocks at her. They're not going to shoo her off and tell her to leave. He said, I've told them to leave you alone. Whatever the case may be. The reality is, is that this is a picture of protection. God's protection. For us today, I want to reassure you that nothing will enter, I've said it before, nothing will enter our lives that has not been strained through the grace and the mercy of God. Nothing, not one thing, no matter how horrific, no matter how painful, 
Whatever has come in contact with us has been either under the permission or the, the actual activity of participation of God. God is our keeper. He's the one that keeps us safe. Psalm 121 and verse number 5, The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth into it and are saved. In the fields of grace we are assured that nothing may approach that is not been first handed off or at the, headed off or at the behest of the master of the fields of grace. There is God's protection in His fields of grace. There's, he, he talks about what is active grace. What is active grace in our lives? Well, it's the guiding. It's the leading. It's the steering. What is the active grace of God in our lives? It's the sheltering. It's the protecting. Also, what is the grace of God in our life if not the sustaining grace? Look at the end of verse number 9. And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Now, go back to the Old Testament. In the law, God graciously, mercifully gave this law for the Israelites. Don't cut the corners of your fields. When you drop something, don't pick it up. It even goes so far as to the olive harvest. When you shake the tree and the olives come down, if some remain on the branch, don't touch them. Leave them for the widow and the foreigner and the, and the poor. Leave them. When you go to gather the grapes, whatever the grapes take off, whatever falls to the ground, don't pick it up. Whatever grapes remain after you've cut, don't take them. Leave them for the fatherless, for, uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the widow and the poor and the foreigner. That, that was his concern. That's his welfare. But there is nothing, nothing to give them sustenance or help as the widow, as the, as the poor, or as the foreigner take up, take up their, their gleanings. Nothing. No provision for water. Nothing. They, they weren't responsible for giving them water to drink. They weren't responsible for giving them care. They could turn their back and say, whatever you find, you can keep. But that's all that they're getting. But here... The master of the field of grace said, if you're thirsty, you come and drink. If you're weary, you come and take shade. If you're thirsty, come take your field. Now you had to know that out in those fields, it was far removed from the source of water. Source of water could be found in the well of Bethlehem. Remember David, he, he longed for the water from the well of Bethlehem. Remember how he desired and his soldiers risk life and limb to go get him some of that water from the wells of Bethlehem. Well, this would have been the water that, that Ruth would have been invited to come and take drink anytime she wanted. No doubt to carry water from Bethlehem all the way out to these fields. Fields don't just butt right up to the city. You know that. They're way off in the country. Someone had to go through great expense 
and great difficulty to bring that water out to those fields. And to just give it away to the gleaners would have been seen as wasteful. But Boaz says, no, 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 that's not you. You're not under the law. There's a great parallel here. Romans talks about being married to the law. How that our standing is married to the law. But in Christ the law dies and we are free to be joined unto Him now. There's a sense in which she was married uh, to, uh, to those sons of Elimelech down there. That she was married to that law. That law that condemned her. That law that had her at great distance from God. But through the, through the death of that law, she is brought into relationship with Boaz, who is our, her kinsman redeemer, and is now invited to drink the fruitfulness of grace we have that sustains life is found in Jesus. Jesus said in John 7, 38 and 30, 30, John 7, 37 and 38, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the Scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus is that water. And if you're a thirsty child of God, laboring in the fields of grace, I want you to know you can come to Jesus and drink. You can come unto Him and find refreshing, sustaining water. There is sustaining, life-giving water in the fields of grace. There's steering grace for our lives and sheltering grace for the uncertain days ahead. And there's also sustaining grace when we're weary in the journey. Again, take your mind's eye to this, as far as you can see, this wheat field. And that wheat field is a representation of God's grace. Everything you need for life and relationship and fulfillment and to obey and do the will of God is in this field of abundant grace of God. Every varying degree, everything that you need, every unmet need is found in that field of grace. Years ago, back when Evangelist Tom Hayes was a student in Greenville, South Carolina in seminary. He was known around campus as a, as a bit of a songwriter. Tom Hayes has wrote some wonderful songs. Well, during one of the chapel services, while Dr. Harold Seitler, I believe it was him, was preaching, he made a comment during his message. He said uh, he, he was making the point about uh, how that Every varying degree of difficulty in life is met with a supply of the grace of God. Whatever the need, whatever the varying differences of need is, there is grace to fit every trial. And there's a kind of new grace that maybe you haven't experienced in the past, but that lays in the path ahead. A new grace that you may have never experienced before. And just in passing, as he's preaching, he, he looks over into the area where Tom is, is sitting and says, Tom, you ought to write a song uh, about that. Just, just in passing. just it's, it's kind of a joke. You ought to write a song about that, Tom. Well, Tom Hayes did write a song about that. Here's, here's how that song goes. 
There's been grace for every mile. There's been grace for every trial. There's been grace sufficient from His vast supply. Grace to make my heart more tender. Grace to love and pray for sinners. But there'll be new grace when it's my time to die. Grace not yet discovered. Grace not yet uncovered. Grace from His bountiful storm. Grace to cross the river. Grace to face forever. There'll be new grace. I've not needed before. Child of God, when you walk out of those doors today, know this, whatever you face, whatever difficulty, disappointment, heartache, trial, seemingly unsurmountable situations, there is grace. God's faithful. I'll lead you, Boaz says. You just stay here in this field. I'll make sure you have water. I won't let nobody touch you. Child of God, that is you. He's saying that to you in the field of God's grace. Ruth came from Moab with nothing only to find out that when she got to the field of Boaz, she has everything. (laughs) Everything she needs. Hearing his voice, water from his Water from his jars, a wheat in his field left in abundance. As a matter of fact, he tells his workers, why don't you just take big handfuls and leave it behind wherever she is. Give her more than what she needs. We ain't got there yet, but that's what happens. Protection. Don't go into no other field. This, this is your place to stay. It's what you need. It's right here. How abundant is the grace of God towards us. Gleaning from the forbearance of grace. Gleaning from the fruitfulness of grace. Also gleaning from the fullness of grace. Talk about a productive day. She woke up that morning not having a clue where her next meal would come from. And now she has all that she could possibly need. It's a day filled with God's grace. A day filled with God's grace will have the same effect on you and I as it did Ruth. Look at verse number 10. What's Ruth's response? What's Ruth's response? Then she fell upon her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest Take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger. She was almost speechless. She's she's bowed down. Such kindness and compassion shown to one who is so undeserving. All she could do was fall down and ask why. If there's ever a verse in the Bible that shows the true spirit of worship, The true spirit with which we should walk through those doors and sit in these pews and sing the praises of God. It's that question. Why? This worship service is not necessarily made for lost sinners. This is for the church of the living God to gather together to give Him praise and to ask, Why have you been so good and so kind and so gracious to us? If you would like to be escorted 
into real worship. Take the lesson from Ruth. When we get a grip on what God has done for us, we ought to throw our self-righteous pride to the side and bow down at His feet and cry tears of thankfulness and awe because of the word, why? Why would you do that? Why would you save an old messed up drunk, an old messed up drug addict, an old, an old hypocrite? Why would you do such a thing for me? Why would you love me and, and see fit to bestow such gracious a gracious field at my disposal? Why? Why such loving kindness? Why? Such mercy. Why such resources given to someone of the likes of me? It seems to me that this moment in the field with Ruth and Boaz really gets to the heart of worship, the reality of grace, then the the reckoning of grace. Boaz tries to answer. Boaz answered and said to her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and mother and the the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and and a full reward given thee of the Lord Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. How does here... Boaz puts together for her, maybe to try to answer her question. But notice, he starts by saying, I know you. I know you. He knows everything. He says, I, that has been fully showed me all that thou hast done. Boaz says, I know everything about you, Ruth. I know your circumstances. I know your sorrows. I know your needs. He knows it all. Child of God, when you come into the fields of grace, know this. There is a Christ, one who meets us there, that knows knows us like none other. That knows our need long before we can articulate it. Long before we can cry about it. He knows what we've been through. He knows where we are. He knows what we need. Robert Hawker, my, one of my favorite preachers from days gone by, he, he, comments, he comments on Boaz's ability to know and compares it to Jesus. Look at what he says in his beautiful comments. Oh, how inexpressibly sweet and precious is it To the mind of every poor seeking sinner. When Jesus thus speaks peace and satisfies the desires of the soul. But how how strange doth it seem to the heart. That in the moment when we fear that our case is overlooked. And that neither our person nor our cries attract the divine attention. Jesus gives us to understand that every secret desire, every tear, every sigh of the soul He hath been a witness to and knows us better than we do ourselves. He knows us. 
He knoweth our frame and knows that we are dust. Boaz, he responds to her question. It's it's because of her turning. She put her back to Moab. She embraced the God of Israel. Thy God shall be my God is what she said. She may not have known completely what that meant. And who does when they come to the kingdom of God? And who does know it all when they come to Christ? They just know, I want this God. I'll have this God as my own. I will put my land to my back and I will embrace this God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul emphasized that we are saved by grace through faith. It is her faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that opened up these fields of grace. The forbearing, fruitful fields of grace are experienced through that mustard seed faith in Christ Jesus to save from sin. In that faith to believe His death was on my behalf. In that faith to believe He was raised bodily, physically from the grave. It's gospel faith that opens up the field of grace. The reality of grace, the reckoning of grace, the response to grace. Look at verse 13. Let me find favor in thy sight, O my Lord, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, for that thou hast Spoken friendly unto thy handmaiden, though I be not like unto thee of thine, of thine handmaidens. Notice, notice she said, let me find favor in thy sight. What, what she want? Oh, let me, let me stay in that favor. Let me stay in your grace. I want you to continue to find favor. To show, to show favor upon me. She had a desire to please him. You know, that's, that's one of the cries of a, of, a, of a babe in Christ. It's one of the things that when you see someone genuinely born again, come to know Jesus Christ, one of the heart cries is, I want to I do something for God. He's been so good to me, I, I want to please Him. I desire to please Him. You know, we're not saved by works. It's not our works that get us into the field of grace. It's the grace of God that gets us into the field of grace that then drives us to want to continue to be in that grace. And I'm not saying we could fall from the grace of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there is, we see in her heart this desire to please Him. Let me continue to have that faith. Many believe, and I think we mentioned it Wednesday night a week ago in our Bible study, that, that a workless salvation leads to a lawless living. That if you just preach grace and there's no works that lead to salvation, then you'll have a people that receive the grace of God and then make a mockery of that grace by living any way they jolly well please. That's not what grace does. Grace gives us the heart of Ruth. Let me stay in thy favor. Continue to look upon me. Let me stay in this field. 
Let me stay in this relationship. Titus 9, 2, 9 through 13 is a very great passage that, it, that brings this to light. Titus is talking about the exhortation of the, of the people. Exhort servants is the, it's a pastoral epistle. So he's talking to the pastor. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things. Not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, he is comparing, he's making a contrast. He said, you tell those that have masters to be obedient, to, to don't disparage the grace of God. Why? Because the grace of God does not teach us to act selfishly, fleshly. It teaches us to act godly and soberly. A denying ungodliness, living righteously. True grace of God. The true grace of God shed upon our lives does in our hearts and lives what the great hymn writer writes. Oh grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. The grace of God shed upon us binds us to Him. Causes us to want to be close to Him. And when we are at a distance, which we are prone to wander, which we are prone to do, it is that grace of God that constantly beckons and calls us into that right relationship. An understanding of God's grace makes us realize what a debtor to grace that we truly are. How rich and full are the fields of God's grace. Maybe you need to clean uh, uh, some of its, to glean some of its rich resources. Maybe you're in Moab condemned. Come to Jesus. Put Moab to your back. Embrace the God and Savior Jesus Christ. Two or three years before John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, died, his sight was so dim that he could no longer read the Bible. A friend and brother in the ministry would have breakfast with him and their custom was that he would read the Word of God and Newton would take a few of the passages and make remarks about them and then they would pray together. One particular day, they read the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Listen to what he said. By the grace of God, I am what I am. John, it said that John Newton was for the longest silent. And then he finally said, I am not what I ought to be. How imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. I am not what I hope to be. But soon I shall be out of mortality and with it all sin and imperfection. 
Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan. I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge that by the grace of God, I am what I am. In the position of a born again child of God, I can truly say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here today and don't know the Lord Jesus. I beckon you to come. Trust Him as Savior. If you need something from these fields of grace, don't go to another field. Stay in the fields of Jesus' grace. For all we need is there. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the beautiful picture we've seen. Father, I pray that you would take it and your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts and lives as need be. Father, we pray that Our prayer was that it would be that the grace of God worked exceedingly in our hearts and lives. Let grace have its work in our lives. Let us yield to it, depend on it, drink from it, eat from it, live in it. God, let us hear the voice of our Master leading and directing. Let us understand His shelter, His care. Let us know of His sustaining nourishment. Let us eat from Him. Let us drink from Him. Let us embrace Him and hear His voice all the days of our life. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.